0: first bit is found in Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 1. It can be found on page 1107 in the Red Bibles. We do have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. We're going to start reading at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We're now going to move to chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. And now I'm going to read from verse 21 of chapter 14. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went to Italia. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Most you want to see what Sarah would do with Persidia and Pamphylia. She did it very well. No. Uh, we're mostly, if you want one reading in front of you, we're mostly Acts 14, verses 1 to 7. We'll dot around a little bit until we get there, try and get a sense of the scope of Acts 13 and 14. But those verses is where we'll land uh, in a few minutes. Uh, my name is Richard. If we haven't met, one of the ministers here. Uh, if we haven't met, it would be lovely to meet you over a meal after the service. Uh, but for now, should we pray together as we come to the Scriptures? Our Father, we have just heard that in Iconium, you confirmed the message of your grace. And we ask that you would do the same among us this evening. Please would you speak to us through these scriptures and speak to us a word of grace and confirm it in our hearts, that as we've just sung, we would believe in the name of Jesus. Amen. YK here, do I need to use this microphone? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm not okay. Let's use this. It means I don't need to wear that. What does a mission partner do? What does a mission partner do? Uh, you may or may not know that at Platt we have eight mission partners. Uh, some of them based in this country. One of them in this room. Uh, mostly in different countries around the world where as a church we have sent them to... Do what? I wonder what you imagine. We heard in one of the morning services this morning from a team who over the summer had the chance to visit one of our uh, mission partner families in North Africa. And so they have a pretty good idea what that family does on a day-by-day basis. Maybe some of those partners are personal friends of yours or you get prayer letters. Maybe they're just names that you hear prayed for on a Sunday evening service. Maybe you're newer here, don't know who they are. But I wonder what you imagine. What does a mission partner do? The Big picture, aims, ambitions, what does success look like? Or day-to-day, what does life look like? What are they going to get up to tomorrow morning when many of us are at work? What does a mission partner do? Well, of course, there are loads of things we could say, lots of ways we could answer that question. For our eight partners, the answers won't be exactly the same. But here in Acts 13 and 14, we see the first time that a church sends mission partners. Up until this point in Acts, if you've been with us in our evening services, people have gone to different places, new places, and spoken of Jesus, but it's all been slightly ad hoc. Here, for the first time, a church gathers together and says, you, we're sending you deliberately to a new place to speak of Jesus. There are some things that are unique here to a particular time, a particular place. But there'll be many things here that are a pattern for all who would go in the name of Jesus to a new place to speak of him. And so what does a mission partner do? Of course, that might be some of us in the future. For the rest of us, why do we hear this? Well, mainly so that we know what to expect from mission partners. What do we expect from them, for them, how do we best pray for them? How do we best care for them? But as we'll see actually later on, there is something here, a pattern for each one of us. As we engage in the mission that we are called to together as a church and each one of us individually. What does a mission partner do? We'll have a look. Uh, Saul and Barnabas. Let's just get this the way now. Uh, in chapter 13, he's called Saul. By chapter 14, he's changed his name to Paul. We're not really told why. For simplicity, I'm calling him Paul this evening uh, rather than swapping the names because for the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is the focus of uh, the book of Acts, and we follow him on his journeys around the place. And I don't know whether you have a, a mental image of Paul. Maybe you're new to the Bible, have no image at all. That's fine. This is a, an introduction uh, to one of the significant figures in the Bible. Maybe you do have an image, one image of Paul that uh, goes around. It's sort of the swashbuckling hero, a sort of Rambo crossed with Bear Grylls, crossed with some sort of uh, Mother Teresa, I don't know, some sort of Christian influence, some, something like that. And we'll see there's some truth in that sort of picture. But maybe, maybe the reality is slightly different. Let's have a look. What does this mission partner do, this Paul, what does he do? And the first thing we see is, uh, this is in chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, uh, Paul is no uh, one-man show. He's not at all a one-man show. Let me read chapter 13 from verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, Paul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Paul is not a one-man show. I have a friend, I won't tell you his name, I have a friend who uh, I didn't know him at this point. He became a Christian when he was a student. And uh, he, I don't quite know where he got this idea, but he decided that what real Christians do, if you're a serious, committed Christian, what you do is you be a missionary to China. And so pretty soon after he graduated, he bought a ticket to Beijing, and he flew to Beijing. As a 22-year-old, he'd been a Christian a couple of years, he knew not a single person in Beijing. And he spoke not a single word of Mandarin. His church leaders told him, that's nuts. Don't do that. With hindsight, 10 years later, he would say, that's nuts. Don't do that. But he'd got this idea that what real Christians do is they'd be missionaries to China and it doesn't matter who tells them not to, you just go. That is not uh, what Paul did. I mean, my friend was fine uh, in the Lord's kindness and actually good came of it. I still wouldn't recommend it. And that's not what Paul did. Uh, Paul had had this, if you were here a few weeks ago, this amazing vision of the Lord Jesus and he'd heard, you're the one I've chosen to take the gospel to the nations, to take the message of Jesus around the place. He could have said, I'm off. But what happens here? He's in Antioch. He's waiting. Until the Holy Spirit says, now I want Barnabas and Saul to go. And verse 3, after they'd fasted and prayed, that's this whole church gathering, had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Paul didn't go until he was sent by the Holy Spirit by the local church. And so for our mission partners today, we're not looking for one-man shows. We're not looking for someone to just decide, I should be a missionary to China, and off they go. We're looking for a conversation, a period of reflection and discernment. What is the Lord's will between an individual or a family and the church? Maybe a mission agency, mission society. Not a one-man show, but someone who's sent by the church. And actually, he comes back to the church. So at the end of our reading, at the end of chapter 14, at verse at 28, they've come back to Antioch. They report what had happened. Verse 28, chapter 14, verse 28, they then stayed there a long time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas, they're sent by a church. They go on this journey. They come back. And then they're based in Antioch for a long time after that. And so with mission partners, it's not that we send them off and say, bye. They still need the churches that have sent them. They need us to pray for them. They need us to write to them. Uh, Striking hearing again from the Burns this morning how much they love it when they send out prayer emails, when they get a a couple of lines back. We love you, we prayed for you, here's one thing that's going on at home. They love it. They're not one-man shows. And from time to time, they'll need to come back and spend time with us. So Paul he's not a one-man show, and then he's not a one-hit wonder, if I can phrase it like that. Let me show you. Uh, this is uh, Acts thirteen and fourteen on a map, which I pulled off the internet. Uh, here's where they go. The uh, red line is the journey outwards. So they start in Antioch, and they go through uh, Cyprus, and then uh, another Antioch, bizarrely, two Antiochs. Uh, but that's the way it was. And uh, through here down to uh, not Derby, Derby. We're calling it to uh, make sure we're not confused. Uh, with the uh, city in this country. Uh, So there they go, through all those cities, preaching the gospel. And if they're heading back to Antioch, (coughs) you'd have thought you'd just go the straight line, because it's a pretty short route uh, from Derby back. But you see the blue line? They go all the way back through the cities that they've already visited. And we read at the end of chapter 14, that was the last bit of our reading, what do they do as they go back through those cities? Chapter 14, verse 21, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the disciples encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they'd put their trust. They don't just go through these cities once and say, brilliant, there are some Christians now, off you go, good luck. They come back. They want to strengthen and teach and make sure churches are set up and there are leaders, elders in those churches and to commit them to the Lord. And actually, they're still not done. Chapter 14, they come back to Antioch. Chapter 15, there's this controversy in Jerusalem. These new Gentiles who are becoming Christians, they're not Jewish. Do they need to live like Jews to be Christians? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the, the kosher food laws? And the conclusion is, no, they don't. But Paul knows that some of his churches will be unsettled by that. These are churches with lots of Gentiles in them living alongside Jews, and that they've heard this controversy, they're unsettled. And so in chapter 16, he takes the letter that they've written in Acts 15, and he goes back through the same cities again. And uh, in chapter 16, verse 5, uh, Luke tells us that that's, the, that's in the end of this little saga. 16, 5, Luke says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. That little sort of summary phrase, that's Luke's way of saying uh, that's the end of a section, so this section of Acts isn't done, this, this missionary journey isn't done, until Paul's been through the cities three times. First, to preach the gospel, see people become Christians. Secondly, to strengthen, and establish the churches. And thirdly, he knows there's been some controversy, to come and show them what's right. He's not a one-hit wonder. He doesn't just want to see people become Christians and then hope it goes well. And so again, our mission partners, their work won't be quick. If we expect it to be, then we'll be frustrated, and very likely they'll be frustrated by our expectations. Uh, Paul's work was slow and deep. He's not a one-man show. He's not a one-hit wonder. We're in chapter 14, verses 1 to 7 now, really. Because the main thing we see about Paul is that he preaches a message of grace. What does a mission partner do? Well, the details will look different depending where they are in the world, what their role is. But what does a mission partner do? They preach a message of grace. Grace is a dominant word through these chapters, chapter 13 to 16. In all kinds of places, we hear this word grace. In in, uh, these verses, chapter 14, verse 3. hello. I can't open the Bible. Here we go. Chapter 14, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Paul preached a message of grace. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, Let me show you. Here is Iconium, which is where we are in chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. This is a photo of Iconium that they... uh, No, it's not. Uh, I created this in PowerPoint. If you can't see it clearly, it's a lot of people in togas. Uh, That's what I imagine Iconium uh, would have looked like in the first century. And if you visited Iconium in the first century, the big division you'd have noticed would have been Jews and Gentiles. So Jews very much in the minority in a place like that, uh, but very distinct. You'd see these people who ate differently, who dressed differently, who worshipped differently, certainly, who spoke differently, who lived differently, who wouldn't eat with those who were Gentiles, non-Jews. It would be the big division that you'd notice. Before living in Manchester, I came from London. There were parts of London where you would notice things very much like this. You'd see, here's a community that is very different, very distinct, lives very separately. That's what you'd have seen in Iconium. And the message of grace, grace being a a gift, God's offer freely to everyone and anyone that Jesus is for you. The message of grace comes into Iconium and says to the Jews, Jesus is for you. As you are, as Jews, in that sense you don't need to change, Jesus is for you, and comes to the Gentiles and says, Jesus is for you as you are. In that sense, you don't need to change. You don't need to become Jewish. You remain who you are, and Jesus is for you. That's the message of grace. The message that whoever you are, and wherever you're from, and whatever your background, Jesus is for you. And you don't need to become like us. It's one of those stories where I'm never quite sure if it's true or sort of a caricature. Have you ever heard someone speak the image of uh, Western missionaries, often British missionaries, in uh, years gone by, who would drag their organ pipes across Africa? Because if the Africans are going to become Christians, they're going to need organ music, because that's what Christians do. That is not what Paul would have done. If Western missionaries say, to become Christians, you need to become Western, they've got something massively wrong. The message of grace says you don't need to become like us. Jesus is for you as you are. And so we trust, we pray that our mission partners in Peru, in India, in North Africa, aren't saying you need to become like us. What we need is a group of people here who looks a lot like Holy Trinity Platt and does the same things. No, no, no. Jesus is for you. That's the message of grace. And what happens when a message of grace enters a city like Iconium, a divided city like this? Chapter 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And so this division completely changes, and it looks like this. You have this group of believers, Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, together. Together. Cutting across the old division, now they're united by the message of grace. The message of grace unites people as they believe it. And James showed us some of that last week in Antioch, how that works out, some of the implications of that. But we see here there's another way that the message of grace unites people. The message of grace unites people who believe it, and the message of grace unites people in opposition to it. So look at verse 2. But, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. See that phrase in verse 2, the Jews who refused to believe. So here you have Paul and Barnabas They're speaking a message that the Jews should have known from their scriptures. That's the point in Acts 13. This isn't a new thing. This is what the scriptures, the Old Testament, has always said. And here you have Paul and Barnabas doing these astonishing, miraculous signs and wonders, healing people left, right, and center. These things you can't explain. But the Jews, verse 2, some of them, refused to believe. They just didn't want to. They didn't like this message of grace. And so... Again in verse 2, they stirred up the other Gentiles. Jews who would ordinarily have nothing to do with the Gentiles. They say, this is serious enough, we're going to work with the Gentiles. They stir up the Gentiles because they don't like this message of grace. And so verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. That's Paul and Barnabas. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to ill treat them and stone them gentile and jewish leaders together opposing the message of grace and so here's the picture that you end up with in iconium the message of grace unites people in one corner of the city you've got jews and gentiles united believing the message of grace and in the other side of the city you've got jews and gentiles united together in their opposition of the message of grace Can you imagine uh, if tomorrow morning (coughs) out of uh, 10 Downing Street walks Boris Johnson with Jeremy Corbyn, with Joe Swinson, with Nigel Farage, and they stand at the podium together and they say, we are in complete agreement that the greatest threat facing this country is, and therefore we're in complete agreement that the course of action we need to take is... Now, how serious would something have to be for those four people to come together and say, we will work together on this? There is something so severe, so dangerous, so damaging that we'll come together and we're completely agreed we need to oppose it together. That's what happened in Iconium. As Jewish and Gentile leaders come together to oppose this message. Because that is how revolutionary the message of grace is. It completely redraws this map. We were living perfectly happily. We have the Jews, we have the Gentiles. They do their own thing. They don't like each other very much, but that's fine. And now the map's completely redrawn, and Jews and Gentiles come together over here, Jews and Gentiles come together over here, and people don't like it. We're told why they don't like it. Again, in chapter 13, the Jewish leaders are jealous. You see, Paul is speaking of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. He's preaching him from the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And the Jews say, no, 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 those are ours. They aren't yours. They are ours. And they're jealous. How dare these Gentiles, they're not getting circumcised, they're not keeping the food laws, how dare they come and claim our scriptures and our Jesus? The Jews here are jealous. And I think something similar is happening on the other side. The Gentiles are saying, no, no, Jesus and these, this Old Testament, they're not ours. They don't, they're not for us. We don't need them. We've never, we've always ignored them. Why are some of our people going over to that side? Why are they meeting with Jews and reading the Jewish scriptures and talking about this Jesus bloke? You see, the Jews are saying, no, no, these things, they're ours, they're not yours. And the Gentiles are saying, no, no, no these things are theirs, they're not for us. So on both sides, people don't like this map being redrawn. The message of grace is that dramatic and that upsetting and redraws the map that significantly. It did in Iconium, and it does today. When the the team first came back from North Africa, from the Burns, they uh, told some of us about a family they'd met there, mission partners sent from another church, not from this one, who had landed in a place and for years had learned the language and got to know a people and started to make friends and were starting to, to be able to speak about Jesus. And there was local opposition People didn't like the idea that here were these Westerners, and it might be, it's fine for Jesus to be for the Westerners, but for them to come here and say that Jesus is for us, we'll have none of that. And so this family was kicked out of the country they'd been in. And they moved to another country, not too far away, and they set about learning an entirely new language and getting to know an entirely new people because they were committed that the message of grace needed to be heard. See, that's what Paul does here. Verse six: uh, There's this plot to stone them. Verse six: They found out about it and fled to the lyconium cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country, where they went. Oh, let's not do that again. Didn't go so well, no. Where they continued to preach the gospel. Why would Paul and Barnabas? They've seen what the message of grace does. They've seen that it unites people in opposition against them. They've seen how hated it is. Why would they continue to preach the gospel? Why would that family that our team met not say, well, we tried? Why would they go again through the effort of moving to a new place and learning a new language? And for us, I said in some ways this is a pattern for all of us. In verse 22, as Paul and Barnabas go back through the churches strengthening them, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, what do they say? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In the entire book of Acts, that is the one sentence that we hear of teaching directed to the church. We hear people preaching to those who aren't believers. We hear Paul in a uh, a couple of weeks, we'll hear uh, Paul speaking to church leaders. But speaking to a whole church, this is it. What's the message of Acts to a church, to ordinary Christian men and women? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Because not just for Paul and Barnabas, not just for our mission partners in different places, for us, we'll find that the message of grace is opposed. When people hear, when people hear that you think that Jesus is for everyone, that no matter their background, their country of birth, their cultural upbringing, their religion, Jesus is for them, you'll find all kinds of people react against that. All kinds of people that you might not expect react against that. Because the idea that, that Jesus is for everyone Well, it offends everyone who thinks they don't need him. And it offends everyone who thinks, why would you say that, are you claiming there's a lack in their culture? Are you claiming that what you have is better? Are you claiming that you are better? There's opposition. Today, as in Iconium, to the idea that Jesus is for everyone. Why would we keep going? Why would we keep going? At the very end of our reading, Okay, we'll finish. At the very end of our reading, Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch. At verse 26, chapter 14, verse 26. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they'd now completed. In Antioch they were committed to the grace of God, that word again, the grace of God. And I wonder what you think that church might have imagined as they prayed for Paul and Barnabas and they sent them on this work, they committed them to the grace of God. We, in the bits we haven't read, the first place they visited, or one of the first in the other Antioch, uh, they were expelled from that city by, again, a coalition of Jews and Gentiles, leaders, who said, we don't like you, get out. In Iconium. They heard there was this plot to stone them, and they fled. Then they landed in Lystra, there they were stoned. They only stopped throwing the rocks because they thought they were dead. And when the crowd had gone, Paul and Barnabas staggered back to their feet, limped into the city, and headed on to Derby to preach the gospel there as well. Expelled from one city, fleeing from the next, stoned in the next, left for dead. Why would you keep going? Chapter 14, verse 27, On arriving in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles imagine how that sounded to the church? Here are two men, maybe still limping. Who knows how many of the bruises had healed by then. Who knows how ugly they looked after taking that beating. And they walk through the door and they say, let us tell you what God has done through us. And how he opened a door of faith. How in every city we've been, there are Jews and Gentiles who are united in believing the gospel. And yet, in every city, there were Jews and Gentiles who were united against us and who hated the message. But success doesn't look like not being driven out of town. For us, for our mission partners, success looks like we preached a message of grace. And verse 27, God did something through that. Why did that family pick up, start again, learn a new language? Because they believe that through the message of grace, God was at work. Why do we keep going? When well, we know there are more popular things we could say, because through the message of grace, God is at work. And when it unites people in belief and when it unites people in opposition against it, that is because the message of grace has been heard and understood. And through that, God is at work. Through Paul and Barnabas. Through our mission partners around the world. And please, God, through us. Let's pray together. Our Father, this. This particular work of Paul and Barnabas, they could say, was completed at the end of Acts 14, but there was more work to do, other cities uh, to reach, Uh, people to see become Christians, churches to see established and strengthened and uh, secured. And that work goes on. Uh, We praise it that it is a work that you do, that you do through us. And so we pray for those eight uh, individuals and families in this country, around the world. uh, Please would you be at work through them, through the message of grace that they proclaim. Uh, Father, where that message produces opposition, uh, give them the grace to continue preaching it. And we long that for ourselves as well. For those of us who stay here in Manchester and look to speak this message, uh, for those of us who might, Uh, In the future, travel uh, around the place with that message of grace. Let us continue in it, confident that through it you are at work. Amen.